Father in heaven, we thank you that you are trustworthy. You're the definition of faithfulness. There's none like you. Thank you for capturing our hearts, Lord, our minds. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail to live our lives in light of this glorious salvation that you've given us. Cause us to repent quickly, turn to you, walk with you, even in times difficult. We thank you that you're a God of grace and you're a God of mercy. That's what makes us sing about you. We've tasted that grace and that mercy and we've experienced it and it's changed our lives and continues to mold and shapes us more to be like your son. So we thank you for the rich songs we've sang tonight. You've encouraged our souls. Now, Lord, we turn to your word and we want to know you better and this passage will help us. It'll help us understand you more. It'll help us understand us more. So give us ears to hear, Lord. Minds that learn and grow and hearts that change and become more like yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 20 is our passage tonight. Good to see you all out tonight. We continue in our trek through the Pentateuch. Penta is the Hebrew word for five. So the first five books of the Old Testament. This is quite a chapter. And it's, it's actually a very sobering chapter. Uh, struggled studying it a little bit um, just from the sorrow that's in this chapter. It contains the death of Miriam. It contains the mourning, uh, excuse me, the murmuring and grumbling of the people against Moses and Aaron, ultimately against God. It contains a miraculous provision of water that flows from a rock and saves their lives. It shows the unbelief of Moses and Aaron. It shows us Edom, Isaac's old brother Esau, still living in hatred. And they refused to let Israel pass through the territory. And then the chapter ends with the death of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. It looks like this is probably about the end of uh, 40 years in wandering. They're coming closer. Our next time we're together, we'll be in Numbers 22 and we get snakes. But if you look at Numbers chapter 33... Verse 38-ish, yeah, 38. As Moses recounts this history in the journey from Egypt to Jordan, in the middle of that, he says in verse 38, Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor on, at the command of the Lord and died in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day in the fifth month. Miriam dies in the first month. And so here in this chapter, we have five months of probably great sorrow. Despite their rejection of God at the first approach, is the first time they came to the promised land. They've had several rebellions since then, a few more to go. God keeps his word. It's amazing. It's absolutely astounding how gracious God is to this nation. He brings them back to the land of promise, even though in all reality, like us, they don't deserve it. That humbles me when I read that. This chapter humbled me. And you might say, well, this nation is so frustrating they, they keep rejecting God. They keep doing stupid things. They, uh, they, they're, they're careless in the way they conduct themselves. And yet what humbles us is there's God's grace again and again and again in their life. And there's such a lesson of us, isn't it? Look at Isaiah chapter 42. 
I was reading this section back around Easter, and it just really struck me. Chapter 40, you begin to see the glimmer of this suffering servant. And then by 42 and forth all the way to 53, we find great details about him. Chapter 42, verse 23, we'll pick it up there. Begin to see Isaiah inspired by the Spirit of God writing about this nation. And then God's response. Verse 23 of chapter 42, who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And in whose ways they were not willing to walk? And whose law did they not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of his battle, and he set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, and he paid no attention. Chapter 43, look at this phrase, but now. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, And he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, as your place, in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. And I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory and whom I have formed, even whom I have made. What a statement of a gracious God. Certainly not all Israel's Israel. I'm going to mention that later in the sermon. But God pulls a remnant from these people, from this people that was so hard-hearted. And Isaiah is this great prophecy of coming doom that is going to come through Babylon. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we see this suffering servant, this picture of the grace of God flushed out eventually in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a nation that benefits from it. We'll go back to Numbers chapter 20, and I want to give you a few thoughts this evening on this as we look at this text. Number one, the death of Miriam and God's grace for the rebellious. I know that is a hard phrase to hear, God's grace for the rebellious, but I didn't know how else to put it as I studied this. Look at the first 13 verses with me. Oops. Then the sons of Israel who... The whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the, pres- from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, Assemble the congregation to speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? 
And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And the water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Well, this is a fascinating section of Scripture, but I want you to note that in verse 1 it begins with the death of Moses' sister, Miriam. And I think what's first striking as I study this is here we have Moses doubtlessly going through personal grief. If your sister died, whom you've been with for these many years, even involved with him in Egypt, uh, all the way through these 40 years of wandering in, she died, you certainly would have grief and sorrow. And it seems that during this time of personal grief and sorrow that Moses experienced, the nation is now falling back into sinful, selfish, their selfish nature again. I think the scriptures here produce enough evidence that there's heartless, insensitive tendencies of the nation that God had rescued time and time again. Here, when someone is suffering, they cannot stop this bitter complaining, and they turn on a person who doubtlessly was grieving. See, sin is always inappropriate, isn't it? One of the things it does is it blinds you to the needs of others. And so... When we are in sin and we don't confess that sin and repent of it and turn from it, we'll do inappropriate things. We'll say inappropriate words. We'll complain inappropriately. That's what sin does. It blinds us to even the needs of those who are suffering. And here is is Moses, the great leader, the one who has done so much for them. They complain why he grieves the loss of his sister. When we're not walking with God in the way we should be, we become offensive. We know it in our own marriages, don't we? We know it in our relationships. When we don't walk with God, we can become very offensive to one another. I know that personally. We can cause needless hurt. You can bring distress into your life because you won't repent. And not only stress in your life, but stress in those around you. How many times have I had someone come up to me in tears who was suffering from something, the cancer or death of a lost one, and and they begin to rehearse something that somebody said who greatly hurt them? Why would you say that? Why Why would you make that conversation about you when you knew that person was suffering? But yet, Christians do that all the time, don't we? we? We get consumed in our sin, and we can't see the suffering that someone's going, out, going through. And yet, here we have it. This whole nation disregards the death of his sister and turns to grumbling and complaining. Unfortunately, this picture of grumbling and complaining is a familiar one. It's throughout the study of this journey, of this wandering of his nation. And every time... Something fails to go the way they want. And I know water is difficult, right? Thirst is hard. But they have a God who takes water and separates it. They have a God who has demonstrated himself so faithful to them, but instead they live in faith, faithlessness instead of faithfulness. And that leads to blame shifting. And what do they do? They take after Moses and Aaron in verse 2. They assembled assembled themselves in verse 2 against Moses and Aaron. They don't dare go against God. But those two guys we can go against. This still happens today when people don't like people. They they won't, won't accept what God is doing. Instead, they'll just attack, right? That's what they do. You might say, though, why does this keep happening? Why don't these people learn? Well, God is watching. And I think what's fascinating is I, sometimes we want to just focus on that. We say, why doesn't Israel learn? Why do they keep repeating this? 
But maybe God wants us to look at, he keeps being gracious. I don't know what side you're on. Maybe you're a half cup empty, half cup full person. I don't know how that all works out with you. You can figure that out. (laughs) But a lot of times we look at this and go, you knuckleheads. Why do you keep doing this? But the reverse side of that coin is he keeps showing his grace again and again to this nation. This is who he is. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses, in his great sermons in the last probably month of his life, as he prepares this nation to go in, again shows how gracious God is. Chapter 8, verse 2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Don't forget this. That he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you were, would keep his commands or not. Don't, don't forget this nation. He was testing you. He humbled you, verse 3, and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quotes that right as he explains himself to be the bread of life. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep his commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you a land into a land of good land, a land of brooks of water and fountains and springs and flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you did where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything, a land with stones of uh, or iron, and out of those hills you will dig copper. And he just goes on and on and on. And as you turn back to chapter 20, you look at these first couple of verses here, chapter 2, uh, chapter 20, verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 3, they contend with Moses saying, if only we perish when our brothers perish before the Lord. Well, that's several occasions, right? That's Korah and his group. That's those on the outskirts where fire consumed. That's those who died before the golden calf. I mean, they, there's, if, God, if we just died in judgment like the rest of our brothers, we would be better off. That's how twisted man's thinking gets. And yet here, the grace of God, look at verse 7 and 8. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, strike them all dead. No, that's not what he does. Verse 8, take your rod. You and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before that, that it may yield its water, so that thus bring forth fruit for uh, water for them, bring forth water for them out of the rock and their congregation and their beast. Would you have done that? Probably not. It's just pure grace of God. And here is a man who is uh, mourning the loss of his sister, dealing with this complaining group of people. Uh, We're going to see his frustrations in a minute finally get vented, but that's not God. God continues to give grace. Moses commanded, you notice that, that to take his rod, this this rod of authority that he has, he's, he's commanded to control it, take it in your hand. It's a symbol of the authority God had given him. But with that authority God had given him, he was not to use that rod that way. He was to speak, speak to the rock and do that in the presence of the nation. God in his graciousness was willing to bring forth water to satisfy their thirst, despite their groaning and uh, murmuring. Now, this provision for their needs was life-giving. You can't live very long without water. And yet it's just another demonstration of the grace of God to undeserving people through, listen, an unmerited act of kindness by God. That's who God is. At the heart of our eternal God is a wonderful kindness. 
Do you believe that? I, I think we, and I know the world does, and, a lot of, and I think a lot of Christians, they, 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 that's not their first thought of God. This is a wonderful, kind God that gives his people blessings beyond what they deserve. And he does it over and over and over. Have you done anything lately that's deserving of not receiving the grace of God? You say, well, how many today? <laughs> and yet here you are, we're breathing, we've had a meal together, we're here breaking the word of God together and feasting on truth, and this is just the pure grace of a wonderfully kind God. Second, the dangers of complacency in the knowledge of of the love of the grace of God. Look at verses 9 through 13 with me. So Moses took the rod before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, now here's where things get off the rails. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and the water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beast drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Well, here again, love and grace is on display. There's water for the thirsty. There's bread for the hungry. God had given them that. They were going to have homes for the homeless. He's going to give them land and homes and fields they did not build or plant. He gives rest to the weary. He pardons and forgives. No, he has part. He has pardons, and he's very forgiving to those who are very sinful, this is the grace of God, and it is most evident in these chapters, isn't it? But these narratives are only, <laughs> what I love about these as you study this, they're only a shadow of the grace to come of someone even greater. They're, 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 they're casting a shadow that will be fulfilled and magnified in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we can see that. But even here in this chapter of death and rejection and, and difficulties that go on here, we see God's grace. And that grace for us as New Covenant believers, right, those under the New Covenant, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The good news for those who have, listen to this, have failed and rebelled. It's good news, isn't it? That's us. Failures, those who are rebellious. It's good news for those who are disgusted with their sins. Are you disgusted with your sin? Do you see your hard-heartedness? There's good news in the gospel. What about, are you disappointed in yourself ever? Do you, do you find yourself disappointed in the way you handle the situation? There's good news in the gospel. It's good news for those who are in despair. Lots of difficult things in this world. There's dear brothers and sisters in our assembly who are in despair right now. They're suffering. But there's good news. And see, good news isn't always just leading us to salvation, which that is great news, right? The good news of Jesus Christ led us to salvation is the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That saved us. That is good news. But that good news goes further. You can't help in this time of season, we've talked about this on several occasions from the pulpit here, is to think of a man named Peter. He's kind of acting a little bit like his forefathers, isn't he, when he gets to the garden. I'll never deny you, Lord Jesus. Peter, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but thrice, <laughs> as the old King James would say. And you're, you're going to realize this because the cock's going to crow, and then you're going to remember. See, the good news of Jesus Christ changed Peter greatly. Led him to weep. 
The Bible says he wept bitterly. The good news brought Jesus Christ to restore him, help him understand his sin, help him understand his abandonment of his Savior. The good news was there when his heart was broken. The good news was there to repair the damage. The good news was there to allow Peter to stand again in the presence of his Savior. And that's true today of us, isn't it? The good news gives a special assurance that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ does not abandon us. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that causes us to repent and come running back to him. When that fellowship has been broken, it's the good news that Jesus did die, was buried, and resurrected for my sins. And it causes you to, and I to run back to fellowship with Christ. And as we're running, we find that he runs out to us, doesn't he? He embraces us. But look, complacency to the love and the grace of God is extremely dangerous when you're complacent to this. The nation had seen the grace of God. They'd seen the love of God in their life, and they became complacent to him because of their needs. They didn't think God could meet them. But look, we have to recognize daily, and, and, and that's why the Lord's prayer and prayers before you go to bed and prayers when you get up and just talking to the Lord when you go about your day reminds you that God graciously meets our, our needs time after time, even throughout the day. His grace is all around us. And when you, and when you experience that grace, and when you tap into that day after day, you, you now have an opportunity not to rob him of his glory. See, I think that's what happened with Moses. He forgot, just like the nation did for a moment. His frustrations, his broken heart, his, his despair that he was under in dealing with this difficult group of people. For just a moment, he, he began to think about himself there. The grace of God didn't penetrate or he didn't allow that to penetrate that moment, that experience at that time. And then he robbed God of his authority. And I think that's what happens to us. And look, if we don't tap into that grace daily as we walk along the Lord and, and live according to the gospel, we call it a kind of a gospelized life, right? We'll be tempted to rob God of his glory, rob him of his authority. We'll try to play the role of the Holy Spirit. You ever do that with somebody else? Start trying to convict people of something else that they're doing? Not trusting God, that God loves those people and he can... And it doesn't mean we want to confront sin, but do you do it with the gospel? Do you do it in a loving way? See, legalism is just waiting to rear its head. And I think that's probably what got into Moses. Listen now, verse 10, you rebels. Should I, I'm going to bring forth this water? I'm going to do this? See, legalism pulls the attention off of God and pulls it onto yourself. And now you become the authority. And you tell people how long the skirt should be and how short the hair should be and all the list of all the do's and don'ts, what you should not do and what you should do. See, that's complacency to the grace of God. Verses 9 to 11 is the sin of Moses. They're not, I don't think he had the right to call them rebels, they're God's children. He chose to take this stubborn, stiff-necked people out of Egypt and make them his and wander them through the wilderness. He doesn't have the right to lift up his hand in verse 11. He was told to speak to the rock, but he struck it instead. And he had no right to say that he would bring forth a miracle that only God could do. Now, humanly, you'd say, well, Scott, come on, man. All the problems he was dealing with. This is hard, man. This is not fair. And, and, and I think sometimes we want to protect Moses a little bit. I know I do. You want to help justify him a little bit by things that are going on in his life. 
But in the end, look, it was his own self-righteousness, his lack of understanding the grace of God in that moment that God said, despite what these people are doing, I am going to be gracious to them. He did not recognize that God in that moment, despite what they deserved, said, I'm going to be gracious. And, And just go a little deeper. Somewhere in that group of people who are dying of thirst is the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not going to let his son perish in his descendants. But in that moment, he usurps the word of God. He robs him of his glory and power, and he reacts poorly to the mercy of God with anger. Did you hear that? He reacts poorly to the mercy of God with anger. And that's what you see in verses 10 and 11. You're trying to control someone while neglecting the grace and mercy of God and not using the gospel to compel and gently correct just leads to legalism. Legalism leads to frustration. Frustration leads to anger. Anger will commandeer God's word and use it for your own purposes. Thus, you attempt to rob God of his glorious power in merciless responses to those who are going through some kind of struggle, at least a struggle you deem wrong. So before I go on, I think we have to ask ourselves, is there an area in our lives where we are trying to control a situation? Can you think of any? Maybe it's an area that needs much more prayer than it does reaction. Maybe it's an area that needs more grace and mercy, more patience, so you and I don't usurp God's word, and we give room for him to work in his purposes. See, I think this is the lesson Moses experienced in the wilderness. Verses 12 and 13 are hard, aren't they? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, both of them, because you have not believed me. See, I think legalism is is a lack of belief in God. In that moment, in that situation, I have to take control. I have to do this. It's a lack of trust, a lack of belief in God. And so you end up striking versus speaking. You end up reacting instead of believe, uh, it, re, You end up reacting instead of believing, right? And you fail to handle the holiness of God in in His sight, and and you're not holy like God is holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And this is what He did. You presume on the grace of God. Look at the end of verse 12. This is quite staggering. Therefore, because of that, you don't believe me. You you mistreated me. You robbed me of my holiness, in a sense, in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Well, the privilege of leading God's people to The promised land was withdrawn here in this verse at the end of verse 12. And and you think about this. This is probably one of the greatest leaders who's ever walked, humanly, walked on this earth. I mean, try to name someone greater. I mean, it's just Moses is at the top of the ladder. And he says, you're not taking them in. I think there's many things that come to mind. I I don't have time to go through it all. But one is just James 3.1. There is a stricter judgment for those who teach. You want to lead? You want to have authority over souls? Peter warns the elders that you're going to give an account for that. There's a stricter judgment. The Old Testament reacts to this in in many ways. Moses himself, but first in Psalms 106, 32 and 33, listen to what the psalmist says. They also provoked him, God, to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that he went, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Then it says this: because they were rebellious against his spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. That's how the psalmist reminds it. Years, hundreds of years later, and then Moses' own account. Look at Deuteronomy chapter four. Look what Moses says about this. Deuteronomy chapter four. He recounts this himself. 
Verse 21. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account. <laughs> you know, he's, we're finding Deuteronomy and we get there shortly. There's a lot of reaccounting of things that would happen and then there's instructions how to go forward. Here he's reaccounting those. Verse 21, for the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan. This is Moses accounting his own sin and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance for I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. A little frustrating, isn't it? The good guy doesn't get to go in. The bad guys get to go in. Hmm. Keep watching here, verse 23. So watch yourself. Nothing out of Moses saying this isn't fair. What is he doing? He's using his own failures, his own mistakes to say to the nation, be careful. Don't do what I did. This is a godly man, isn't he? All the way to his death. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. I forgot it for a moment. And make yourself a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And Moses knew that now, didn't he? And when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make it idle in a, a form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall surely, quit, surely perish quickly from the land which you are going over the Jordan to possess you shall not live long on it, but it will utterly destroy. It will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left in few in numbers among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of ha- man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor, nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. And he will search for it, and you will search for him with all your hearts and with all your soul. Isn't that interesting? This is Moses' account of his own failure and the prophecy of what's going to happen to this nation, that they're going to do the same thing he did. And yet the grace of God would be there to meet him. Look at chapter 32. I found this so interesting to see Moses' view of his own sins. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, verse 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor, And was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you treat you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel for you shall see the land at a distance but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. I take the pen that right. You sinned. And then you get to pin what you did by the inspiration of the Spirit. What an amazing feat that was and how God used that. And so I think as you study those and you make your way back to Numbers chapter 20, we see that the nature of the transgression is deeper than we first think. And it's serious and it had dire consequences. Moses was disobedient to God's word because of frustrations and irritations. Are you ever disobedient to God's word because you're frustrated? I mean, every one of us should say what? Yes. Bitterness? Anybody deal with bitterness? Dallas and Moses was struggling that. He was bitter at these people. God had done so much for them. And, and yet in his bitterness, it blinded him to the truth of God. And he took things into his own hand. But I think here's the worst. 
Because like you, you read this passage, and there's a little bit of you saying, it's unfair. I don't get this. If there's ever been a passage that people have asked me many times and said, I'm a little frustrated with God that he doesn't let Moses in, I have heard that so many times. And it, probably all of us have a little bit of that frustration looking at this. But I want to go just a little deeper here. What came out of that rock? Water. Life-giving water. Moses steps in front of God and says, I'm going to give you that life-giving water. Uh Uh-oh. That's dangerous. See, it's much deeper than you think. There's only one who gives life-giving water. If this goes on and is not taken care of by God himself, they begin to think that Moses is our way to the promised land. Moses is our way to God. It is through Moses that we gain the promise in eternal life. That's where this would go. In fact, that's where it goes. They worship Moses and David and and. Paul has to use them as examples and Abraham in Romans chapter 4 that they need it to be credited in righteousness because here Moses says, I'll give you what will sustain life. See how bad that is? Jesus Christ says he's the living water. I'll give you water you'll never thirst again. The disciples couldn't give it to the woman of the well. The Jews couldn't give it to the woman of the well. Nobody could give that but Jesus himself. And when you start to dig in this a little bit, you begin to realize this was extremely dangerous, what he did. Only God gives life. And today we have religion after religion where you go to men who say you get life. Do this, do that, don't eat this. Don't wear that. Don't go there. Don't eat on this day. Don't do that. All these, don't touch, don't handle, all of that, right? They control that. They are the authority over God in a sense. And if you follow those religions, you'll find yourself in hell. See, now we start to see this is a little little more deeper, isn't it? Don't rob me of what only I can give because now you're a false religion. It's grave, isn't it? See, once you begin to get your mind around that, now you realize why God dealt so strongly with Moses. He had to make the nation know that life does not come from that man. And I'll prove it to you. He's never going to go into the promised land. Because he can't bring you in there. I'm bringing you in. I think that's what we see in this passage. Now, the grace of God is never found in complacency and unbelief, right? And we're careless with the grace of God. We'll send our privileges away from serving him, right? As Christians, we don't lose our salvation, but we misuse grace sometimes. And if we misuse it and don't repent of that, we will, use, we will lose our usefulness to the Lord at times. We've watched that happen. I've seen dear friends. I was telling the elders the other day, I think I have a half a dozen dear friends in pulpit ministries who lost their ministry from infidelity. Men I went to school with, men I've preached conference with, men I've served around the world with have lost their ministries. They didn't lose their salvation. They lost their privilege of their calling. And that's what happened here. Moses lost the privilege. And I think what we see Moses here, it teaches us that there is there is no position within the spiritual kingdom of God on this earth that's not, that's not in reach of the disciplined hand of God. And so everyone who stands in this pulpit or teaches a Bible study or disciples someone, we need to take very serious what we do. Because God is serious about his word. Thus says the Lord, not us. And we see a great example here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and following says it this way. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't take credit for what's 
only I can have. I got to go in the dangers of generational rebellion. Number three here. Look at 14 through 21. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, isn't that interesting? You know all the hardships that have befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But we cried out to the Lord, and he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through your fields or your vineyards. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, do not pass through us or I will come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force, with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Well, here we find the account of Moses' humble petition to the king of Edom to pass through his country and journey back to the land of Canaan. But Israel is refused. You'll see that clearly in the text. And despite all the assurances that Moses gives this king, he would not let him go no matter how peaceful Moses said they would pass. Well, clearly Edom had heard of God's provision for this nation. They were scared of them at some level. But it's more than that. Edom and Israel go all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis, don't they? This is the sons of Esau. And Esau and Jacob have battled. Phillips writes on this. He says, Edom's rejection of the nation of Israel to pass is simply one of the number of subsequent incidents in the ongoing history of God's people which underlines not only the uh, hereditary uh, enmity between the two nations, which is a common ancestry in Isaac, but also the implicit hatred that Edom shows towards Israel. But it's interesting, this rejection does not go unnoticed by God. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll find places over and over. I found five places where God said, Edom's in trouble. Uh, Isaiah 21, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25, Amos 1, and Obadiah 1 all say, you're going down. <laughs> and I, I think that's quite fascinating. There's a clear message here that when it comes to responding to God's people, um, you better be careful. You mess with his people, you mess with the apple of his eye in a sense here. And it's interesting, when you study this, God often chastises his own people, right? He disciplines them, he judges them, he even sends them off to captivity. But woe to anyone who tries to take that into their own hand. So what's clear as you study this little portion, you begin to realize that the nation was so often full of grumbling, complaining, and led to rebellion, but yet God saw them precious, and he would not let harm come to them unless he allows it. Isn't that interesting? I remember one day, when I was a seventh grader, just to give it a little example of this, uh, my friend Bobby Simonson, uh, he lived in Oakland, California, and uh, we would go to each other's house and play basketball and goof around. And uh, we used to cut through a public school to try to get to my house, and there was a gang of kids, and they always were giving us problems. One day they jumped us and tried to beat us up, and I was a little faster than Bobby, and I got away, and Bobby didn't. And they beat him up pretty good, and I was able to get back and pull him out of the situation. We go home, and we're kind of all beat up, and then my brother showed up. Now, four of us brothers, you can imagine how we fought like cats and dogs. We were four brothers, very athletic, and we fought all the time. But the minute you step in and touch one of us, there's all kinds of problems. I remember telling my brother Don that this group jumped Bobby and I. And it was within a matter of minutes, he had rounded up the rest of my brothers and a few of their friends, and they went and dealt with those guys. And I remember walking home for years to come like there was a bubble around us. 
Later, my brother said, I told them if they ever get within eyesight of you, they better run. And they just parted seas when we came. You know, God did that with the nation of Israel, undeserving as they were. He later does that as he protects this nation. And remember that seed of Christ is in there and he protects them. And who knows what would have happened to Eden with Eden and that war there and all those type of things. And God has his hand in that. God does not allow people to touch his people unless it's under his divine will. I want to drop down to last thought here just for the sake of time. The death of, Israel, death of Israel's first high priest. So much more to say in that, but we'll, we'll hit those again as we go along. This is quite sobering, verse 23 through 29. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron on the Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people. Isn't that interesting? You're going to die. This is the place. This is the time. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up to, the Mount, up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. And then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. Well, the recording of his death here, the first high priest of Israel is quite sobering, isn't it? It's another loss. Five months here, he loses his sister, and now he loses his brother-in-law here in Numbers chapter 20. Five months apart, and doubtlessly Moses had times of great sorrow and loneliness because of this, but yet God is telling them to deal with this nation. He has to still keep serving. He has to still keep doing what God has done. He also has his own sin of striking the rock and robbing God of his glory and causing the holiness of God to be questioned. He's dealing with those things. And yet he's giving this order, notice in verse 27, with all those pressures, with all those difficulties going on on in his life, verse 27, so Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. Still a great leader. He failed, but still finishing well. I like that. There's grace in that. So we see that Aaron dies because he was part of that. He was part of that unbelief. He was part of that, that not recognizing the holiness of God, of robbing his authority. We see that in verses 12 through 13. But we read in verse 14 that there's almost a gentleness here. I, I read it kind of harsh, but let me reread this. Verse 29, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land for which I've given the sons of Israel because he's rebelled against the commandment, command of, uh, at the waters of Meribah. And, and, and Aaron and his son Eliezer, and bring them, up, bring them up to Mount Hor and strip him of that. And when you read that, it's, it's a bit sober. And he says he's going to gather to his people, a real common phrase used throughout the Pentateuch, speaking of God's promise to gather his people even in death. But in verses 25 and 26, you, you start to see this this, this is difficult, and it even may seem harsh, but I want you to think a little further. God, in a very beautiful sense, is continuing the ministry of Aaron to the next generation so that the people will not be without a high priest. So that they can come before God. There's one who can bring the blood of the animal, the blood of the innocent into his presence. And they can be reconciled. And so it's a very gracious, again, a very gracious act of God. If he dies, then there's no one to go in. And so here there's this little ceremony that goes on. And the ephod and the dress and the headdress is all taken off of him. And he's stripped of that. And. There it's put on. And I, as I thought about this, I thought maybe, maybe this was comfort to Aaron, who, who had to be a, somewhat of a godly man. He had to be a godly man. All the things that he failed in and trusted God and watched 
um, I, I hope that brought him, I hope that brought him joy. The people he had served now still are going to have someone who can represent them, who can inter- intercess for them, come before God with the sacrifice. And I don't doubt that Aaron felt comforted by that. But it's a wonderful reminder. Remember, all of this stuff casts shadows, and we'll end with Hebrews chapter 7. It's all casting shadows a little further ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Um, As I ended my study in this passage uh, of number 7, I found myself to this great chapter of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Go down all the way to verse 23. It says, the former priest, that would include Aaron, on one hand existed in great numbers, that's all his sons and descendants, because they were prevented by death from continuing. So there's son after son after son. Uh, as you read the scriptures, they begot and they died. They begot and they died. And then look at verse 24. I have this circled in my Bible. But Jesus. <laughs> They're all dying in verse 23. They're one after another in great numbers of them. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever. This is the greater high priest, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he has always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful act of kindness of our Lord. He's always interceding for us. He does not die. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, one that was holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like Aaron would have done, like those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this is he, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Look, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. They die. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a man, excuse me, appoints a son made perfect forever. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the reminder of chapter 20. Um, I've often struggled with this passage myself through the years. It's clear there was frustration on Moses and Aaron's part, Lord. They just got tired of 40 years of grumbling and complaining. 40 years of doubt and faithlessness. 40 years of challenges by others. Not content with what God had asked them to do. And yet, in one moment in that frustration, one moment of not seeing the grace of God that he wanted to pour on a rebellious people because he's perfect in all that he does, sin came into Aaron and Moses' heart. Lord, they said they could do something that only you could do. And it would have deceived the nation greatly. And so you brought your hand of discipline upon them. So, Lord, help us learn to trust the grace of God, not try to be the Holy Spirit, but to allow you to work, certainly to speak truth and love kindly and carefully, loving people and allowing the grace of God to minister through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us not to try to do what only you can do. Help us to trust that you will rescue your people even when they don't deserve it. Because that's us, Lord. Help us never forget that. Lord, we thank you most of all as we think of all of this that Jesus Christ is the greater high priest. He is the one who does not need to sacrifice for his own sin. He's the perfect one. And Lord, we have a great high priest who suffered in all ways and yet constantly intercedes for us. And so we can trust him, Lord, and we don't have to usurp his authority. We can believe his word and we can find peace in our life. Lord, forgive us when 
we try to do what only you can do. I pray that this lesson, Lord, has encouraged the hearts of the hearers, Lord. It's encouraged mine. I pray that we would just think on these things tonight. We would meditate on these things. We thank you that your word is always right and always true. And always guards our hearts and guides our hearts to truth, Lord. So, Lord, bless the word. Thanks for these dear people, Lord. Thank you for putting them in my life. Thank you for what they mean to me and how they've encouraged me. I pray you just bless them. Give them sweet rest tonight, Lord. Give them a hunger and a desire for your grace and your mercy and your love and your gospel, Lord. Use this church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.